Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, so go and check out all that they have to offer, whether it's the latest, greatest, newest reviews of the newest, greatest games with Tom and Z and uh, the whole crew. Uh, they're over there at the Dice Tower. Uh, there's a huge catalog of reviews and commentary that you can search for using their database. It's truly a great resource for gamers. While you're there, also please check out all of the other sister podcasts in the Dice Tower Network. The Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out why Gamesurplus.com is always my first choice whenever I'm looking to buy a board game online. Uh, they have just an unbelievable reputation for customer service and shipping and packaging. Uh, their standards are incredibly high. If they say a game is ding and dent, it probably means there's a tiny, tiny little, uh, just a little corner ding or, uh, you know, the, the almost unnoticeable. Um, but they understand what gamers like, and they understand that um, gamers want games that are in pristine condition, and they are always honest about the condition of their games. Their prices are fantastic. Their shipping is wonderful because everything is very carefully packaged, and I just can't recommend them enough. If you're looking for a hard-to-find game, if you're looking for a game that is not yet available in North America. If you're just looking for the latest, greatest game, go check out gamesurplus.com. And if you do, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I also want to send a special shout out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They're right off of Interstate 80 on Main Street. They are very conveniently located for anyone who's in the northeastern PA, um, southern New York, and northern New Jersey region. Uh, they are right on Main Street where there's lots of other great attractions and restaurants and places to go and things to do. So the next time you're in northeastern PA and you're somewhere near the 80 corridor, stop on by Main Street in Stroudsburg at the Gamer's Edge and see everything that they have to offer you. That's the Gamer's Edge. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Patrick Nickel. Uh, Patrick was kind enough to reach out to me a, a while back and ask whether or not uh, he could perhaps talk about one of his favorite games, and he gave me a, a list of two of them. He uh, asked me about Alien Frontiers, and then he also mentioned Tikal, and I was like, yeah, yeah, Alien Frontiers. Let's talk about Alien Frontiers, kind of forgetting that I had already recorded an episode with Jim Shaw about three years ago about Alien in Frontier. So Patrick was a great sport and said, well, hey, how about T-Call then? And I said, oh, that's fantastic because that's a game that I haven't covered yet by designers that I really respect. And I think it was uh, very innovative for its time. Yeah, yeah, let's do that one. So Patrick was nice enough to set some time out of his busy schedule uh, to talk to me today. And so Patrick, I want to say welcome and thanks a lot for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, to Call is, is a phenomenal game, and if you haven't done a podcast on it yet, and, and you haven't, we definitely, definitely need to do one. Absolutely. I would agree. It's on that list of like ones I haven't done yet was, uh, you know, Tikal, El Grande. Uh, there's some, some real just amazing early games, I'd say, from that 90s period that just really, really I needed to talk about, and I just haven't had a chance to do it yet. So I'm glad that you uh, were excited and wanted to talk about this one. So, Patrick, for people out there who are not familiar, uh, perhaps by chance, um, could you tell them a little bit about uh, yourself? And uh, you actually run a game company. Tell a little bit about that. And, and just give us a little background about you and where we can find you on the Internet or Board Game Geek or otherwise. Sure. So I'm I'm the founder of Crash Games. And if you want to find me on the Internet, uh, you can most often find me on Twitter. That's at Crash underscore games. 
Uh, we have a Facebook page as well, which is facebook.com slash crash games. And those are the two, the two really best places to, to find me. Well, fantastic. And so uh, Crash Games uh, has been around for a while. I, I remember I did a review of Council of Verona, which is a game that I really, really liked, um, both for the theme and for the gameplay mechanics. And this was one that uh, I actually did an episode with Joel Eddy about this one. This was kind of in an episode we did about these kind of almost we call them like super fillers or or they, they were games that weren't just kind of light and fluffy fillers that you just kind of okay guys we got 20 minutes to kill but these were actually games that were short that had a small footprint but that had a, a real kind of meat to them and so we discussed quite a few of those uh yours uh council of verona being one of them and so uh can you tell people a little bit about uh, maybe some of the games that you put out and and some things maybe to look for from crash games before we move on Sure. So we have a, a litany of games uh, that we've put out and our more recent ones have been our newest one is Pirate Den. Um, and, and that is kind of going in a, in a new direction for crash games. I never really had kind of a a foothold in, into the industry for for one thing or another. But now I've kind of moved more into a a um, I don't want to say casual, but games that can can sell well both in mass market and in hobby and so games that are you know ideally 30 minutes or less very easy to teach and remember and very easy to get to the table and council of verona kind of kind of kicked that off for me it kind of taught me that you know hey people want to jump into a game and i saw it getting played a lot more so than my other titles that that are great you know like chunkier tiles like pater which is from the designer of alien frontiers tori neiman and great, great game, but you know, not those games are harder to get to the table. So it was kind of a kind of a a, a, a faded moment that I had, and, and, a, and a realization, an epiphany. And we also just released a, our first expansion, our first big expansion for Council of Verona, which is the Corruption expansion. Nice. Um, and it, yeah, people that like the poison, it, it adds quite a bit of trickery and 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 fun into the game. And uh, yeah, that's we've got couple new couple new titles coming out um we uh licensed um uh pie mall flamen from uh pegasus spiel and that's a fun little uh, i don't want to say it's a trick-taking game because it's 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 an odd trick-taking game yes, it's it super is. nerdy yep. yep super fantastic so we we got the north american license on that so we'll have that here pretty soon and then um we have a great game by brett j gilbert uh part of the design team of elysium uh, a game called fish frenzy and oh, that's that's a fantastic one. And also uh, Backyard Builders Treehouse, which fin- features the amazing, amazing art of Vincent Dutrot. And that is a, a reskin of Yardmaster Express designed by David Short. Oh, really? Interesting. OK, well, I'm, I'm familiar with the artist, of course, because I think he's the one. Isn't he the one that did uh, New York 1901? And, and yes. uh, yeah, okay. Lewis and Clark, Discoveries, right. Longhorn. Like the guy is he's probably like my favorite my favorite artist, which I always hesitate to say because then I I make my other artists mad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he definitely is. I love all my children. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I love you all the same, just different. Um, He he definitely seems to be kind of like the most painterly, I would say, of of a lot of them. Like it, it feels less like illustration and more 
I think because I, I, it looks to me as though he works in watercolors a little bit. There's kind of a softer sort of an edge to things, and um, it, it's a it's an aesthetic that I really appreciate. Um, so I'm with you on that one. And Pie Mouth Lamin is is a fantastic game from everything that I've heard. I've heard people raving about it, and uh, I know GameSurplus.com has a copy of the German edition that I've been kind of waiting. She gets them in occasionally, so it's nice to hear that uh, you're going to have North American distribution rights, and uh, more people get the chance to play that game because i've heard great things about it so well thanks for sharing a little bit about crash games for people who are interested and uh or maybe didn't know about the the games that you've got coming out so that's fantastic um so let's put the business aside um that was my idea not yours i just want everybody out there to know that <laughs> <laughs> and uh we're going to talk a little bit about Tikal, which is just this uh, absolutely uh fascinating game um Tikal is uh, a game where it, you're exploring sort of the ruins of uh, this jungle. You're kind of clearing a path through the jungle and kind of hacking your way around and trying to find these temples and then uh, excavating sort of these temples layer by layer and uh, exploring and all of this wonderful stuff, finding treasure. Um, and so it really kind of uh, excited me when I first saw it because it kind of had that Indiana Jones kind of flavor to it of going into the jungle, you know, um, and, and finding these amazing treasures in these amazing archaeological sites. And you have all these, uh, you know, crew members who are working with you, etc. And so this was an easy hook for me because of my love of the theme. So um, what was kind of your story with the game, uh, Patrick? When, when did you first become aware of it? What got you interested? So it is actually um, the game that I've been playing the longest out of out of any game that I own. And it was way back in... Uh, 1999 Mm -hmm. Uh, and the hobby scene was super super early in the US at that time there really wasn't wasn't much and the only reason that I played it was I had a good good friend uh, Gordon Wollers and he helps me out at my booth you know from time to time at, at conventions and we lived in this tiny town in in western Nebraska, Ogallala, Nebraska, like population like fifty five hundred, and so not not a lot of stuff to do. Right. And so um, we played we played games. I would say a minimum of of three nights a week. And so, you know, we had we had been in Denver, you know, because Denver is like the closest metropolitan city, and we went into this, you know this hobby store because at that time there weren't a lot of board game stores and we went into this hobby store and they had this this game uh called settlers of Catan. Mm. and uh the only reason he picked it up is he saw the box and it had won some some german award some uh spiel des Jahres, and we didn't know what the heck that was and <laughs> and so we picked that up and um i liked i liked Catan quite a bit at that at that time but i wasn't enamored with it and and so like 6 months or so later at the same store that apparently was just importing the the sdj games uh he picked up to call and to call completely captured my imagination i was completely enamored with it i couldn't possibly play it enough and it you know thinking back on it you know this weekend in in preparation of of your podcast here i just really think that it did it did so many things for me and i think if people look back on it from an analytical perspective too that 
you actually get a an education in in hobby gaming from Tikal, and I think that's a really interesting aspect that I've never I've never heard anybody talk about um, because it it is the the grandfather of of the action point allowance mechanism, and that taught a, an entire generation of of gamers uh, how to min max right because every single one of your your actions matters. Absolutely. I, I think you uh, really hit the nail on the head with that because it, it really is a game that encourages analytical thinking and it encourages that min-maxing. I think it is not only the game that introduced action point allowance, it is also the game that, for me at least, introduced the other AP uh, into my life, which was <laughs> analysis paralysis, uh, in particular with my wife, who is... Uh, probably the queen of min-maxing. She is an extremely good gamer, uh, but she does take her time. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was revolutionary for me in so many ways. And, you know, Patrick, I think it goes even to the opening of the box. Like, I remember opening up that box, and that was probably the first game that I'd ever seen with a vacuum-molded insert. Like, oh, yeah. everything oh, yeah. fit. I'm like, wow, look at this. And I'm like... All, there's a space for all of these things, and oh, these these little you know player aid cards fit uh, on top of these other pieces, which are nestled below it and keeps them in there. And then oh, you know, look at these thick tiles, and they're all marked A, B, C. You know, all the letters yeah. on the back for organization, and um, you know the little wooden pieces in the tents. I love the tents. You know, I mean, who would think you could get so excited about a triangle made of wood? But you know, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, and about the only thing the game did not have, I remember I added one set of components to the game. And I don't know whether or not you did something similar, but I added a set of, what was it, 10 pennies and 10 nickels. And we would oh, use okay. the pennies and nickels to track our action points. Uh, it is 10. If I, if my, I haven't played in a while, but yeah, my memory 10. serves you. You have 10 action points. And... One of the things that this also introduced me to, this was the first game that I'd ever really played early in kind of my dive into the board gaming hobby, Patrick, with um, iconography and learning this incredibly unique visual language. This idea that, like, I looked at this little player aid card and it had all these little symbols and icons. But once I had kind of learned those things, it's like, boy, all of my options are right here. There's a a little visual kind of cue as to what those actions do. And then it tells me right here what the cost is. And it really was. I was looking at a menu and I was like, I could do this or I could do that or I could do this three times. And I could, you know, and and it was just something that blew me away. Like I had never seen anything like that. And so um, from everything from the presentation of the game, the artwork, the storage solution, the bits, um, and then moving on to the kind of central uh, mechanism of the game, which is this action point allowance system, all of it kind of just blew me away. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned that you kind of started off with like Settlers and then you kind of saw this game. Um, and, and this was one that really kind of captured and fired your imagination because of the sort of uh, thinkiness of it. You know, the, the idea of the analytics of it and the sort of trying to figure out what's the best thing that I can possibly do. Um, a lot of times mm-hmm. when you hear people talk like that, you're talking about a game that is rather tactical rather than strategic. Do you find that to be true about this game or what, what would you say about that? Well, the, the great thing about, about to call is that, you know, it, I find it to be very approachable. 
Um, and you don't have to go down that hardcore tactical route. You don't have to go down that extremely analytical route. And then just for the for the listener's sake, for those that might not have played the game, I think we should give like a quick a quick overview. Absolutely. So, yeah. To, to call is primarily an, an action point allowance uh, area control game with with a little bit of, of set collection thrown in. And so um, the object of the game, uh, spoiler alert, is to get the most victory points. <laughs> and uh, you do that on each turn. You get to draw a tile and place a tile and then take 10, 10 action points. And there's a litany of things you can do with your action points, but you primarily score... Um, in, in two ways, you score by having the majority on an area of a temple and the temples will ascend in value. They start it, you know, they have varying starting points, but generally, um, they start around two or three and then they can be built up higher and higher all the way up to 10, but there's only one, one 10 point, you know, level in the game, one nine point, like I think one eight, two seven. So as you go up higher, you know, it's it's harder to get that. They're not all going to be 10 point tiles. And then it has a really uh, clever and, and often fought over in, in my group that I played it with earlier on back in the late 90s of the the treasure token. So you get to unbury those. And as you get more of a set, uh, they become worth more. So it it really was just it really just is a, a phenomenal game, and 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 through the I'm getting I'm falling in love with it all over again and getting off topic. But um, the game goes through some scoring rounds, which are essentially when when a volcano comes out, and those are staggered because the hex tiles that are drawn go through letters A through G. I want to say I believe so. Yeah, yeah, and so those are those are staggered, you know, and 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 that's another thing that you know I'd I'd love to talk about is how one of the one of the things I'm I'm getting. Going down a rabbit hole again here. We can come back to it, but you know the staggering of of play. Uh, so those volcanoes come out, and then um, people take you know a, a ten ten specific you know actions for that scoring round or the volcano round as we call it, and then you go back and that player that drew it you know then places it and takes their takes their normal turn. So it's just. You know, that that's the gist of the game. When you get to the end, you know, you you have that final that final round and then, you know, whoever has the most points wins. But it is ah, I could I could sing its praises forever because when I look at it from and and I've I've just fallen in love with it now that, you know, even more now that I, I make games for a living because I'm able to look at it with a with a developer's brain and with a publisher's brain and I see I see all the systems that came into play and I'm very, very happy. It looks like super meeple. And I know they do a lot of licensing work with yellow. Um, it looks like it's getting a refresh. It's slated to come out Q2 this year. So, um, yeah. And super meeple just refreshed, um, Mexica, which is also in the series. And then I, I believe there's one more in that series. That's Java. Java, yep, and I believe that's getting a refresh as well. I knew that, but oh, I've been moving all weekend and my brain is toast. <laughs> um, and so uh, it it really it really just it just and and I enjoy I enjoy Mexica, I enjoy Java, but none of them, neither of them, will ever replace uh, Tikal. It's just ah, uh, 
I can't. I sound like a complete buffoon over here. But no, am, no, not I'm, at all. Uh, you know, well, it's your enthusiasm which comes through, and it's an enthusiasm I think that's well deserved from the game design standpoint because it does kind of hit on a lot of cylinders. You know, you mentioned the action point allowance, the set collection, and then you also have um, area the, the area majority and exploration. You know, because yeah. one of the things about this game is, as you said, as you pick a tile and you play a tile, you're kind of excavating through the jungle, if you want to think of it that way. You're clearing. And well, yeah, and they and they captured that in an extremely an extremely thematic way, because when you start out, the very long game board is all just, you know, very dense, you know, forestry mm-hmm. in the in the Mayan jungle. And as you place the tiles thematically and visually you're showing that you've explored that area. And I don't, that is such a fine little detail that I don't know that, that people really catch that, you know, I think they know it subconsciously. I don't think they know it, you know, cognitively on the, on the front end. And that's not, you know, that's not easy to do. And I think that's what, you know, I I realized this morning and I tweeted this, I've been playing to call for 17 years. Mm -hmm. How many games do we, do anybody in our, our industry own that they've been actively playing in that um, uh, that amount of time, and so I, I look at it starting from the complete, you know, childlike awe and wonder of of adventurous exploration, and that really is, you know, what's happening, and uh, with so many you know intricate you know mechanics in, involved in it, but at its at its core, at its absolute you know broadest sense, it is a game of exploration. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I would also argue that, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about with the exploration, how that works, it's subtle, but it makes an impact on the player because you, as you said, you get that feeling of progression, of progress, of, you know, we, we are exploring, we are clearing, we are finding things. And there's a sense of excitement that's kind of inherent in any kind of exploration game, which is why I think it's a popular mechanism. But it's also, it just works beautifully in this game. I would also argue that this is another one of those games that uh, I think is, is noteworthy because of something you just said. So this is a game that will just totally geek you out and that you will be amazed by jaw-dropping, whatever, as a new player in the hobby. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is because despite the things we're talking about, the game really is pretty straightforward. It's not hard to teach and it's not. It's very approachable. You could you could throw somebody into this just the same. You know, it's not that much more of a of an uptick than, you know, a a ticket to ride or Stone Age or anything like that. Exactly. Right. And so we can appreciate it at that level. But a lot of times like now that I've played like, you know, I I think I looked I've I've had like over a thousand games come in and out of my collection and and whatnot. (laughs) And. But with that comes a little bit of that feeling that you get. I call it the dreaded seven. You know, like there's just so many just solid games out there. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. And they're kind of just like the seven. You know, they're, they're good games. And if I was new to the hobby, maybe I'd be really freaked out by them and think they were just amazing. But being in the hobby for as long as I've been... I kind of now I'm kind of like, yes, I can appreciate that. That's a solid design. Well done. But it's not like something that I'm, I'm going to say, well, I have to keep this. To call yeah. manages to keep itself through all of the stages that I've kind of gone through. Sure. And I, I really think that, you know, you just you spurred me on to a thought in that in that moment, thinking that 
I think To Call was a little ahead of its time. I think that the reason that more people haven't played it and the reason why it's it's not necessarily as as popular is because, you know, this came out, you know, in Germany in 1998, released in the U.S. after the, the Spiel des Jahres in 1999. And that was really kind of a, a period where our hobby was super, super fringe. And, you know, the games that, that came shortly thereafter, you know, Ticket to Ride blowing up in, I believe, 2003, 2004, you know, mm-hmm, not too mm-hmm. long after. And then, you know, To Call kind of got kind of got left behind it kind of you know it it was ahead of its time and now i'm really really hoping you know with the the brand recognition you know super meeple does a, a fantastic job you know and the brand recognition that yellow will bring to it that i'm hoping that it it gets its its time in the sun you know i'm hoping that that it gets to find a new generation you know because it really is such a great you know, game for for that that crowd that's looking to to get into the you know the hobby gaming scene a little bit more. You know, they're ready to to play you know something a little bit more advanced than you know Catan or, or right, Ticket to Ride, right. which are great games because it's it's not that much of a stretch beyond. You can really approach it from that perspective, and it's it's really as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a game that I think you get better at as you play more. It's a game that rewards, you know, repeated play. It's one of those games where, uh, in particular, um, knowing when and where to set up your camps, because in the game you Mm -hmm. have these little tents, and every time you are bringing kind of your pieces... Um, your assistants or, you know, whoever who are going to be kind of going and and moving out into the jungle and excavating these temples, and they're going to represent that area majority part of the game. Um, Your expedition workers. Yeah, your expedition workers. I mean, you you bring those guys out where you have tents, and so you start off the game kind of on the edge of the board, and there's like a kind of a network, like a root building kind of a part. It's like it takes Mm -hmm. you a while to move through this jungle, even though it's been cleared. And so, you know, pretty soon you see a couple of promising sites that have been excavated. And you're like, okay, um, if I plop a tent down here, now I'm going to be able to move more efficiently around the board. Um, and I'm going to be able to get to those locations perhaps before my opponents can, uh, right before a scoring round. And then, you know, then you have to decide. Uh, one of the mechanisms in the game, if I recall correctly, Patrick, is you can take one of your, uh, your uh, assistants, your workers, and you can kind of cap a pyramid yeah like a king of the hill Uh yeah you're allowed to do that it's this is again this is such an interesting mechanic in the game you're allowed to do that a maximum of twice Mm -hmm. you have to have the majority on that space to be able to do so and what makes it super super fascinating to me is that you permanently lose those expedition workers any any extra extra expedition workers i'm stuttered there a little bit sorry (laughs) that you have on that space you you lose they're out of the game now your opponents that have expedition workers there they don't lose them but if i claim a space you know because i have five and let's say you have four you know i'm gonna lose those four workers and workers are are very finite in this game you only you only have what is it like 12 10 something I'm, like I'm that not, yeah yeah not remembering maybe it's a little bit more i'm like looking at the the rule book it might be it might be 15 but they are limited losing 4 is a very big deal so you know you're you have to be really sure that you want to cap that you know maybe that space is a 
I have a little rule. I won't cap anything that's not an eight, nine or ten. Right, right. Some sometimes I'll cap a, a temple that's worth seven points just to know that I can count on those. But when I do so, I'll try to do so prematurely. Like I'll cap something as low as a, a six if I'm the only one on it and I'm not going to lose any any expedition workers. So. Yeah, that's that's one of the and it has so many of those, Jeff. It has so many of those like look at look at this this mechanic and look at kind of how they they tweaked it. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with that that area majority like, oh, you have to have more. And oh, but it's that's not just it. You're going to lose you're going to lose those expedition workers like so. You know, looking at at a lot of the the main uh, mechanics in this game, there's just a slight little tweak to them that makes them particularly you know interesting. Like, look at the the action point allowance system. So, so the listeners kind of understand, you know, what happens. You know, everything you do in the game has has an action point cost. So, uh, the the main thing you're going to be doing in the game is you're going to be moving from hex tile to hex tile, and on these hex tiles. You're only allowed to move if there are stones mm-hmm. that connect one tile to another. And they don't have to be stones on both tile, but there has to be at least one stone. But often, you know, one of the things you can do is when you're placing a tile and you want to make it a little harder for your opponents to get to, you know, you can stack, you know, if the if the tile has, because with it being a, a six-sided tile, with it being a hex tile, you know, there could be stones and any number of stones on any one of those or multiple of those six sides. And so you can turn it in such a way to where it makes it difficult for your opponent to get there because each stone costs an action. And that's, that's what you use most in the game. I would say the second thing you use most is you uncover a temple level. And this is a rule that's often, often missed in the game because I've missed it quite a bit is you're only allowed to do a maximum of two, but you have to have, one expedition member in there per level. So if I have just one guy, you know, chilling on a spot, <laughs> I can't uncover two levels. Right. I have to have two guys there. And that is a very often, often misrule. That costs two action points. And then very, very well scaled is if you move on to a treasure spot, which the treasure becomes super important in this game. Um, I think I've won without it. But it's it's basically it's hard. It's not, hard. Yeah, yeah. Not getting it allows your opponents to really take that as a heavy, a heavy strategy. And it costs three. And again, you're only limited or you are limited to a maximum of two. And it kind of uh, covers that same thing as well. I can't have one expedition member in the area and uncover two treasure. I'd have to have a second guy. So that was a really interesting, you know, minor thing. And I bet that came out in playtesting of, hey, you know, you need to have two guys on there if you want to, un- you know, uncover more than one level or you need to have two guys on there if you want to discover two treasures. Now, the r- other interesting thing with the treasure is that you're able to um, swap with your opponents, but you're not allowed to break up, you know, pairs or sets. So it's nice that those are those are protected. But if I've got, you know, the little the little golden idol and you have one and I need it to make a set like I can give you something, you're not necessarily missing out, but you are you are helping me. That's that's a three action cost. And then, like you said, you have two tents in the game that allow you to to basically spawn, Mm -hmm, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, you know, from that new location. So you don't have to start at the very beginning of the board. And the really interesting thing is, too, is that you can move 
expedition workers from the beginning tent on the board and your two other tents for just one cost. So they can like thematically, I always thought of that as like, oh, it's like a little secret tunnel you yeah. have <laughs> right, you know, right. yep. under the board. And that but that costs five to plop one of those tents it down. Is. And you only have two. So you gotta be really careful where you put them. And then that that mechanic that you just mentioned, sort of the king of the hill placing a guard on top. Um, that's also a, f- a five action cost. So, you know, those tents and the and claiming a stack, that's half your turn. Yeah. So they did such a good job with with the scaling here. It's not just a, a loosey goosey, you know, action point allowance system It is really refined and it's it's elegant because it's just it's perfect. They They did a really good job with it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely from an era where games were, I think, thoroughly. Uh, play tested and kicked around and developed and refined, as you said, it's a great word that you use there because I, you know, I, I totally agree with you. The the there, it's not an accident why certain things cost a certain number of action points in this game. It becomes very clear as soon as you yeah. start playing it. There's a reason why everything costs what it does. Uh, and it it makes it so that the game plays very smoothly, but you can't ever really just do everything you want to do. And this is where that sort of min-maxing comes in. You know, it's like, yeah. I could do this and this, or I could just plop down a 10 here and move over here. Or yeah, That's I only going to do... get me one point. Exactly, you know. right. Or I could do this, or, you know, uh, he just uncovered a treasure grove over there, and I got a guy, I could get maybe two of my guys over there. Now, he ended his turn, he, he found the treasure grove, there's... You know, four. There's three treasures on that space, and I know he's going to grab mm-hmm. one on his next turn, but he can't grab two because he's only got one guy over there, and his closest guy is too far away. So if I can get my guys over there, he might grab the one, but then I can grab the two. And I mean, these are the kind of conversations you're having with yourself yeah. while you're playing the game. And so yeah, you're teaching yourself to min max, yep. which is which is not you know to people that aren't you know math nerds. You know, like my wife, she's fantastic. She she's a systems engineer teaching her to, you know, play a lot of these hobby games, you know, and and kind of bringing her into the hobby was the best and worst thing I ever did because she'll destroy me because she'll catch (laughs) on to that system and she'll know exactly how to, how to exploit it or how to, to work it. But the nice thing about to call is that while you can min max, it has just the perfect amount, in my opinion, of randomness with what tile you draw, with what treasures flip over. So, you know, I, I scream from the rooftops that my favorite games are high luck, high strategy, you know, games like Carcassonne, games like Takenoko, games where you can know the game and you can know it well, but there's just enough randomness in it to where it's not a beatable system. It's not a solvable problem. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that randomness comes from so many different factors. I mean, it comes from, as you said, the tile flip when you're exploring. It comes from the way you seed in the volcanoes because that's going to be random um, each game. Um, within a subset of the tiles you're going to, it'll tell you, like, shuffle in one volcano tile in, you know, this stack. And so you know it's coming. Well, no, it'll have, they're, they're in those letter stacks. So you shuffle, like, the A's and right. then you shuffle the B's. So you you know people that have played the game know that that first volcano, I believe, comes out in the C stack. Right, but you don't know where the, it's coming out in the C stack. You don't know stack. where right. in the C right. stack, yeah. And then, you know, what? how 
how my friends and I that know the game really well, we play it on the, the auction version, which we can get into, you know, a little bit later. So, you know, you you can kind of have a little bit more strategic control because people that have played the game often and know it well will some kind sometimes kind of get angry when they draw that that blank tile that they don't really want. Right. The right. one that's just open grass for them to potentially build a a tent on and so with the the auction system that kind of uh, removes that random element of the game but then introduces you know you have to bid your victory points in order to to take you know before your opponent so while they've removed some of the randomness now they've they've you know kind of um come around on that and and added in the the cost factor so right right but I, I do agree with your point about how the randomness does give fresh legs to the game each time because, as you said, yeah. it's not something you can solve. It's not something that you can completely math out. But it is something that I, I am convinced. I mean, I've seen people play this um, who are really good uh, versus a new player or a player who's only played it a couple times, and usually the experienced player is going to win. Um, which yeah. tells me that there is definitely, you know, when I asked you about strategy and tactics in the game, it, it shows me that there definitely are some strategic considerations in the game. And I think a lot of that comes from these sort of uh, cost-reward calculations that you have to do that you've already alluded to. You know, the cost-reward of going for those treasure tiles versus excavating another level versus Mm -hmm. moving people to try to get a majority to temple before someone caps it. Um, And as you said, I mean, there's all these other interesting decisions. Like um, you you had mentioned, like, you'll sometimes cap a a pyramid at six. Well, I I was kind of chuckling to myself because I remember I would do the same thing if we happened to excavate a pyramid early. And yeah. I knew I was going to score that period but because when you score, you're scoring basically everything on the board, if I remember correctly. And so yeah. what that meant is, OK, I can I can cap this and guarantee myself these points for the rest of the game at this cost. Or I can wait, run the risk that someone else is going to swoop in here or I can wait and try to bump it up a little higher, play a little bit. It's almost like a little game of chicken. Because as soon as sure. you build it higher, more people get interested, and well, they yeah, start coming it, over. <laughs> yeah, you're making it you're making it more attractive, and that that kind of you know brings to the front of my mind just how much I appreciate that mechanic of the volcano scoring round. So unlike other games where you know where I've seen like okay score the board, it's it's when you've gotten to you know you've reached x point on the scoring track go ahead and score the board how how to call does it is that player draws the volcano tile and normal play pauses right and you go into that scoring round and so whoever drew it you know takes a takes their 10 action points but they're able to do this you know with scoring in mind because they're going to take their 10 action points and then score and that that is a really important order of 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 flow of the game that you it's not hey you drew the volcano score the board it's take 10 action points and then score mm-hmm. and then that proceeds clockwise which each, each other opponent taking 10 and then scoring but you have to you have to think when you do that because when it's over you know, there's there's the temptation of I'm going to take this and you have to weigh that that decision of I'm going to take this and score as much. But then you're going to proceed the rest of the game with where with where you put everybody. Now, ideally, 
that that should put you in a better position. But what's going to happen is if I go and take my 10 action points and I, I claim an area that's got a particularly high value temple is that now you're going to try to, you know, come in and, and take that behind me because you could end up scoring that same temple on your turn. Mm-hmm. And so it, you want to be careful because then it becomes like these magnetized spaces of everyone is now flooded in there and I'll kind of hang back sometimes. I'll, I'll let a couple people kind of go for that high point temple, make a rush on it with their workers, and then that'll leave an area of the bo- board exposed. And, and that is really, oh my gosh, like I, I think this got me into tactical thinking and I didn't even know what the heck I was doing, <laughs> right? I didn't realize how analytical, how tactical I was being. Right, right. And then that's why I say that I realize that this game is almost like a, a mini degree in metagaming. It's like a mini degree in, in tactical strategic gameplay because I don't identify like that. When I sit down to play a game, Jeff, my my primary objective is to have fun and socialize with the people that I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. And I can still do that with this game. But because to call kind of introduces this this system that I one of the things I talk about a lot in when people interview me and ask me about game development is I say that whenever I think about game development, I think of the, the Autobahn ride at Disneyland, right? And you're on this fantastic path. You're on this fantastic journey and you have just a little bit of control, right? You can turn the car just a bit, but then you're going to hit the rail. They don't want you going off the rail. It's on a, it's on a monorail system. They don't want you crashing to your death. It's frowned <laughs> upon it, frowned upon at Disney. Fun little weird fact. Do you know that no one has actually ever died at Disneyland because they take any, if anybody has happens to pass away at Disneyland, it's a little morbid. They'll take you off the property. Obviously I have to take you to a hospital and they'll pronounce you dead once you're off property nice. so that you're not tarnishing their image. <laughs> this is really weird, like morbid side. I bet you didn't, didn't think you were going to, get something no, like no. that on the podcast no, that's a bonus a weird, that's, that's really yeah. a bonus that you added there that's added value yeah. folks um <laughs> i bring added value to this some weird like disney trivia as no one's been pronounced dead at disneyland um and so that that system of of giving people enough freedom you know to explore things but keeping them within a system but making it not feel controlled those cards at disneyland very much so feel controlled and so i always use that as my counterpoint of it's my job as a developer to make sure that the game has enough, you know, leeway for you to be able to do things, but to be able to keep you within that, that, ex, you know, experience. And, and that is what to call does so well is that you can go heavy treasure, you can go heavy temple, you know, you can, you know, mix it a bit, but it keeps you within those, those parameters. And, and that to me is just the epitome of, of elegant design and development. I would agree with that. Uh, I would also uh, like to make two other quick notes, if you don't mind. Uh, we have managed no. to talk about this game for almost 40 minutes, and we have yet to mention the fact that it was designed by Michael Kiesling oh. and Wolfgang Kramer. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are terrible people. They are actually my favorite my favorite design team. Kramer Kessling is an insta-buy for yep, me yep. On, on any game. Like, I just picked up Porta Negra. Yep. Um, I like it quite a bit. Uh, Palaces of Carrara. That's fantastic. You know, I have yeah. so many Kramer Kessling games. Like it, it's always insta buy for me. I don't have to do any research because I know that I'm going to at least enjoy it. They haven't all been keepers for me, but they have something like 40 games designed together, yes. which is just an unprecedented amount of, of games. And yeah, shame on me for not for not <laughs> giving Kramer and, and Kessling a shout out. And then 
Michael Kessling too. Like I just, I just played Vikings for the first time. I am smitten with Vikings. Oh, that's a great I game too. Just, yeah, that's the, the, oh the, the one gosh. with the uh, uh, the wheel, right? With the the you yeah, it has a. <laughs> I super like nerd people out. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a great variable economic rondel. Mm-hmm. They're like, what are you talking about? Yes, yeah. like, well, that's that's what it is. It's a variable economic rondel, and it drives your. Your action selection. These these gentlemen know what they're doing. Uh, Michael Michael Kessling and Wolfgang Kramer know what they're doing. And to have a game like to call, like I, I'm not sure when they both started games. This was early, I know, think, for them. But it had I, to be pretty early on in their career. Yeah, I think so. And and I mean, it was quite quite a quite a splash for uh, for them. And and yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree. They. They really do produce just some super solid games. I mean, Palaces of Carrera with the notion of you choose when to score. I mean, it's such a simple idea, but boy, that really makes that game interesting. You know, it's like, you know, I can only score so many times in the game and I kind of get to choose when I'm going to score. Where did that come from? What what a great idea. Um, and uh, Porta Nigra, I just uh, played that the other day uh, myself. I think it was last weekend. Uh, played it with some friends, and oh, me too. I, I was quite happy with it. I mean, I I thought it was yeah. an interesting game. The uh, area majority part of uh, the different buildings and. Uh, the economy is super tight, uh, trying to manage that and trying to manage your movement. And it was all very, very interesting. Um, and so They're gaming geniuses, as far as I'm concerned, they really, really are both of them. I think so. And I think that they're both really, really good at doing all the things that we've been talking about, which is can how, how to make if you want to learn how to make a game with complex decisions, but low rules overhead. These are the guys to look at. Yeah. So many of the you games. Study, yeah. study them. Like if, hey, you're a you're an aspiring hip hop artist, study NWA. Right, right. You're an aspiring game designer, study Kramer and Kessling. Yeah, because they really do, to my mind, um, do such a phenomenal job with this of, of taking these systems, introducing these systems, but doing it in such a way where the rules themselves don't get in the way. You know, there, there are a lot of games that I really like and appreciate from modern designers, but sometimes I kind of feel like there's some complexity in there that is just so in my face that it makes it difficult for me to navigate the game or focus on the game. And I'll give you a perfect example. I'm a big fan of Stefan Feld, but Aquasphere... Yep just about like i still don't know what to make of that game i mean it's just it, everything about it oh, is kind interesting. of i haven't played it like i'm i'm a big felt yeah, fan, yeah. And, and that one hasn't hasn't been cracked yet like trajan and and castles of burgundy are are permanent fixtures in my, Absolutely. my collection yep, mine too so you so you feel like aquasphere gets in its own yeah way? yeah it's it's like there's some games that really just kind of have begun to get in their own way all for the sake of being complex it's almost like complexity mm. i was just talking with joel eddie about this gratuitous complexity yes like it, it's almost like um people are kind of uh, and it's interesting because of your kind of mission statement that you started off the show with and we're kind of going down a tangent here but that's okay um <laughs> that's fine we, we, we <laughs> have this kind of thing now where complexity equals greatness now it seems to be this formula Ooh. like the more complex a game is the more serious gamers and people who are really into the hobby myself included generally seem to trumpet them and like them and talk about them uh, but there's a, a sort of a subtle undertone of snobbery that kind of 
develops, I'm afraid, sometimes with that, you know, that these $500 bottle of wine when you can get a good taste out of a bottle of two buck. (laughs) Well, I don't know that I go that far, but yes. (laughs) But, you you know, you get the point. Like, I mean, the other game I I played a game the other day. uh, My my daughter wanted it because she's at an age now where she has lots of friends over and not all of her friends are uh, gamers. And so. She has found a few games that have worked for her that are just kind of casual, like King of Tokyo. Like, she can play that with anybody. She can teach that. Um, Resistance, uh, Werewolf, games like that. And these are all games that would be popular with teenage girls. Yes, exactly. And, like, I picked up Cash and Guns, second edition. Mm -hmm. They love that game, you know? Yeah, it's it's, it's games that have... And, you know, I, I've, I've discovered that, you know, now that I'm in, you know, my fifth year of, of, of making games, you know, with Crash, Crash of Games, you know, that that barrier of entry and that, that ease of play becomes very, very important. And that doesn't mean that your game has to be simple or that right, doesn't right. mean that your game has to lack substance. But I would much rather play a game with, with simplicity that I can jump right into Versus something, you know, and, and I like a lot of hardcore games, too. Oh, sure, yeah, but, sure, yeah. you know, as a as a publisher, I, I don't want to make those anymore because it, it's just fewer people, you know, to get to the table. I want to appeal to the masses. And and I've discovered, you know, in this last year and, and attending, you know, shows like New York Toy Fair and and seeing a lot of these other, you know, mass market shows is that a, a non hobby gamer is is irritated if they have to read a rule book. Right. Yeah. And that that's really fascinating to me is can you just jump right into your your game? And and this past January, you know, when I, I kicked off our first convention of the year at, at PAX South in San Antonio and I was, you know, demoing our newest game Pirate Den like a fiend, is that I didn't even really have to teach the rules. I said, here, you have an identical deck of cards. We have eleven cards to choose from I don't need to tell you anything. Flip a card over. We'll see how it resolves. And I promise after that round, you're going to know how to play the game. And they did. Right. And that barrier of entry is is minuscule. Right. You know, it's like pudding skin. You could get go right through it. Yeah. And so, you know, then they see kind of how elegant it is with, you know, how the cards resolve based on, you know, initiative. But you don't w- use word like initiative, you know, with the masses. You just say, hey, you played a lower card. You get to go first. You know, and and seeing that kind of come into, you know, seeing how they they perceived that, how easy they were able to get to it just just gave me a a unextinguishable fire of I need to be and and Crash of Games needs to be making games that people can can jump right into. Right, right. And, you know, I think that that's uh, there's definitely uh, a huge market there. There's also a a huge place there uh, for it in the hobby because. That's the kind of thing that draws people in. And then, you know, once they're in, um, then eventually then they'll start looking. Then you can hook them on looking, the hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then they'll start looking for other things. Then they'll start, you know, well, what's next? Well, how about Carcassonne? How about Ticket to Ride? You know, all of these games sure. that we've kind of how come to know to and call? love. Yeah. And so, but, but I, I think overall, it's not that there's anything wrong with complex games and heavy games. I love them as much as the next guy. But what I'm growing to appreciate the older I get and the more rule books that I've had to digest over the course of my life, mm-hmm, um, yeah. kind of uh, playing in the hobby and also kind of working in the hobby a little bit, doing review work and, and doing the show, is that 
Um, I, I really find myself just enjoying when I open up these like rule books and they're like three pages and I'm like, oh, look at this. This is going to be beautiful. Yeah. When you open up a rule book and there isn't a staple in the center. <laughs> good, yeah, just good things are, are about to come. Exactly. But, you know, the thing that you also said that I think is really important to key on before we kind of uh, leave this segue behind is the idea that just because a game is simple or easy to teach or is not overly complex does not mean it does not have have complex decisions, which yeah, it doesn't is, mean that it lacks substance. Right, right, and that's a great way to put it, and and that's where I think T Call lives because the oh, game yeah. is relatively simple to teach. Um, you hand someone their menu, you explain the actions they can do, you give them um, a objective that makes sense. I'm trying to find temples, make them big. Um, I'm trying to find treasure. Got it. Like this isn't this isn't like difficult to figure out. It's not like an aquasphere. It's like, well, I'm trying to get the squids. I don't know why, but I'm trying to kill these squids. I'm trying to move my robots to activate this, and then I got to get submarines out to the different areas of this station. Why? Don't really know. Um, I'm trying to build this other little personal station uh, using these kind of lettered tiles. Why? Because they'll give me bonuses at the end. Why? Don't really know, but that's the way it is. And, and it's like you kind yeah. of get into these kind of systems where when you're trying to teach it, people's like eyes glaze over. Now, it doesn't mean it's a bad game, but what it does mean is it's like you're kind of putting like layers of cobwebs in front of people's eyes as they're trying to see the game and understand the game. Whereas Tikal um, is a perfect example of a game that thematically the rules kind of make sense with the theme of the game. They're not overly complex. And then the complexity is driven by the decisions that you have to make and by the other players at the table. And that's my other point that I really wanted to get your opinion about, which is a lot of people have talked about how Euro games and Euro style games are very non-confrontational. There's not a lot of interaction. And we certainly have moved to a, a point in the hobby uh i'm, I'm gonna say we're moving away from it now but there was a good four or five year period there where that that term multiplayer solitaire was very in vogue you know people liked to build their own thing and uh that would be like a castles of burgundy you know it's like i'm building my little fiefdom you're doing your thing and we might bump heads occasionally but basically we're not having anything to do with each other this game actually i think is relatively high on player interaction. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, I would absolutely say that, that to call is a very, a very heavy, uh, has a very heavy player interaction, you know, feel to it. And in my opinion, it has a very good, you know, player interaction feel like you can, you can be a real jerk when you place that volcano and, you know, you (laughs) can can. really, and, and that to me is fun. Like I love a good rage placement, (laughs) of a of a volcano <laughs> you know if someone's like been that. been doing me wrong yeah, you know yeah. in the game but i really you know how you place the the hex tiles the paths that you create and their associated you know action point cost you know where you put the treasure down it all has a a direct correlation you know and it is done in in such a way where it's not extremely um what a lot of people refer to as attacky you know, it, it certainly can be and you can go that route. But, yeah, this is not a, a game of of multiplayer solitaire. And I really I don't dislike games like that, you know, because I am a fan of, of games like Castles of Burgundy and I am a fan 
of of games where you're kind of doing your own thing and i don't necessarily you know see that as a negative but i always enjoy games that are highly interactive you know much more because if you you know from what you you've said about aquasphere and again i haven't played it but the interesting thing is i did play octo dice which was you know created thematically and inspired by aquasphere and I found it to be quite complicated and I found the box with as as fun and jovial as the art is to not be indicative of the game that that laid within. Right. And so, you know, anytime you have a game like that where there are, you know, gratuitous amounts of of complexities, you know, you really risk the game being very polarizing and those complexities becoming a paralytic and 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 not allowing the player to actually enjoy the game because they are so paralyzed by their decisions and there are too many or the the intricacy of those decisions are so complex that you've now removed them from the overall gameplay experience and and to call definitely doesn't do that in fact it does the opposite the decisions that you make you know are are relatively easy and your level of, of making them and, and the decisions you make can become increasingly more complex as you get to know the game better and you're able to fully understand the ramifications and the consequences of of the decisions that you make. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And and I think that one of the things that, that makes me feel that this game is, is higher on the player interaction, even though it's not a direct, like, I take your pieces, ha, ha, ha. Um, it, it has to do with the fact that I... I view player interaction uh, a little differently maybe than, than some people do, so I'll define it um, for people out there who are listening, which is if I am intimately concerned with what everybody else is doing, that to me is a game with player interaction. Yeah, because there's no downtime. Right. You're going to be watching that play and you're going to be seeing, you know, as as the player makes that decision, what's this going to cost me on a future move? How is this going to, you know, and that's not just it's not just creating a situation where if you're diligent and you pay attention, you'll do better. You are inherently invested in other players decisions because they have such a direct correlation to your decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what to me makes the game feel so uh, so interactive is because of that that constantly having to reshift my ideas and my focus based on what other players are doing and to me that is very uh, indicative of a game that is very high uh, very high on the tactical end of things because I you know my other competitors, are going to influence the decisions that I make almost on a round-for-round round basis. Whereas the oh, yeah. overarching strategic kind of decisions in the game, as you said, you know, am I going to kind of go and focus on temples? Am I going to focus on treasures? Um, you know, it really is, I think it falls a little bit more on that tactical end because of all of the great player interaction. I mean, this is one jungle we're exploring. And we're exploring it mm-hmm. together, but not cooperatively. <laughs> we're exploring you're, it competitively. You're playing BP. I'm playing Exxon Mobil. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. We go really yes. like political and exactly dark with it. right. Like two companies <laughs> that could get lost in the jungle, and I wouldn't be yeah. unhappy. Um, so anyway, <laughs> your phone's now exactly. Being yeah, we'll leave that aside for the moment. But uh, yeah. So all right. While we're talking about player interaction, one of the things I want to get your opinion about, Patrick, is what is the deal here in your mind with player count? Do you think this game plays well with two? Do you think it's best with three, with four? I mean, what are your thoughts? 
So I this is actually one of the few games where I I think it's great at at any any player count, you know, two, three, four. You're able to to play a different game. So in a two player game, you can have just soul focus. You can have tunnel vision and and really zero in on that other player. And, you know, it's going to be a higher scoring game because there's going to obviously be you know, less competition to call doesn't have any, any scaling. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, as far as, you know, you do a different thing at, at different player counts or take out X tiles, because this is definitely a, Hey, once the board is filled, the game is over. So you can't really take out, right, right. take out any tiles. And so there wasn't, there wasn't any scaling done here, but I don't feel that the game suffers for that where other games I've played where they, they haven't done any scaling do make them very different games, you know, and, and not so good at a lower player count. And putting two players on a box for game that don't really play well, two players is one of my biggest pet peeves. I really, really can't stand it. But so at that two player game, you've got that that opportunity to zero in on your one opponent and and absolutely stay focused on everything they do. In a three player game, it, it's really interesting to me because I've had games where I played with my buddy Gordon and my buddy John, and if if Gordon and John start to kind of, you know, try to go tick for tack with each other and kind of forget about me a little bit, I can sneak off to the side and do some things that they may not be paying attention to. So I really like the opportunities that that present themselves there, and it's not terribly difficult to watch to watch two of your opponents. But then at the four-player count, it's just the, the floodgates are open. And there's a lot of competition for everything. And I really feel that 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 pushes you into a very disciplined, you know, style of play because there's that many more pieces on the board. There's that much more competition for the treasure tiles. There's that much more competition for the higher value temple tiles. And and so I, I would recommend if somebody's playing it for the first time, a four might not be the best player count. You know, I would dive in at a, at a three. I think that, you know, I'm going to buddy, I'm going to borrow uh, my buddy David Short's, you know, idea that three players is is a near perfect player count for for any game um, other than, you know, a game that only plays two. You can't play right, Seven right, Wonders right, Duel right. with three people, you know, and so. You know, I would recommend somebody playing it for the first time, you know, try it out with two kind of give yourself a little bit of buffer to only have to watch one person, you know, and, and the game is not going to suffer for that. And then, you know, your next time, try it with three and then try it with four. But I really feel that that it is still a great game at at every player count, but it's going to be slightly different. Yeah, I would I would say that uh, my experience matches yours. You know, the two player game was definitely more wide open, but it was also a little more vicious um, and more chess like. Because, sure. uh, you know, it's kind of hard not to telegraph what you're doing when there's only two of you playing. And it can be hard to kind of uh, pull off those misdirections that you were kind of talking about before, where I'll let those, you know, other people kind of swarm in here. Uh, I love that term you use, like a magnet tile, where it's going to attract a yeah. lot of attention. And then I'll kind of slip away quietly and go do this, which uh, actually is going to end up being better for me. It's harder to do that with the two player. Um, and, and but with two player, you can actually do a 
uh, depending upon how your opponent places their tiles, you can actually make a route and an area you know, that you kind of yeah. have as like a private resort mm-hmm. that's so cost prohibitive yep. for them to get in there that to do so, they'd really be hurting themselves. And that's what you have to watch for the most in a two player game. But all that changes with one placement of a tile in a tent. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it's not like it becomes a runaway issue, you know, because there are things you can do to to prevent it. But there is that that opportunity. But that's part of what I see is the, the glory of a two player game is the potential to do that. Yeah, and, you know, those paths, like you said, you can use them very strategically to kind of try to section off or carve off a, a portion of the board because I think it's either one, two, or three stones on each one of the hex faces, uh, and not, yeah, not all of them. you could have a maximum yeah. of six, right. you know, based upon how you play it, three on one side, three on yeah, the other. Yeah, that would be brutal, you know. I mean, it's like if you're mm-hmm. in there, you're in good shape, but if you're not in there, you're going to spend most you're of the turn trying to get there, and then you have to decide, is it worth it to you or should you – go off and do this instead. And that's kind of that whole delicious decision-making part of the game. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I wanted to highlight that I kind of forgot about, uh, Patrick, was the, the use of the uh, your your leader piece, right? So he's, yeah, the expedition leader. I have that written here in my notes. I love the expedition yeah, leader. Yeah, he's really cool because he counts as three, I think. It's either two or three. Yeah, he, yeah. he counts as three. three. Okay. And he moves, he moves just like anybody else. There isn't any extra associated cost but he be kind he becomes this kind of trump card worker where you can you know he can throw his weight around and you can move into an area with with just you know a single a single action point for each of his his steps and his movements and you can gain that majority and i've even seen people you know use that to to uh, do the the guard to place the guard on the temple to take that top thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I always have to like look in the rules. I'm like, am I allowed to do this with my my leader? Now you're going to lose him. But if you have, you know, if it's early in the game or someone is is not really dominant in that area, I will not hesitate to sack my my expedition leader for a seven, eight, nine, or ten value temple if I'm able to grab that majority and not lose any of my other workers. Right, right, which is just really key. Um, and it's one of the great things about him. I've also, um, a <laughs> whole other aspect of the game is I've threatened with him, you know? Uh-huh. I've kind of oh, been yeah. like... he becomes like, don't make me send my... I'm just going to send him yeah, in there. Like, yeah. he is he is definitely <laughs> a threat force. Yeah, I love that you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it's like that's where the negotiation would open up. I'd be like, well... I tell you what, if you're gonna mess with me, I've been I've been really working hard over this temple. Are you gonna are you gonna move that guy in there? You're really gonna do that because you know my expedition leader is right over here, and then we'll see <laughs> what we'll see. And then you know you actually open up this whole other like little negotiation part of the game where you know there's like a little stare down where it's like okay, well if she does that to me, I'm gonna do this and that you know. So it's kind of fun um, because that expedition I leader is so overpowered. I have to play a game to call with you, Jeff. We have to. We have to make that happen at a convention. <laughs> that would be fun, right? <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there's so many things about this game. I think that the phrase that you used earlier, that idea of it being ahead of its time, I think this is a game that that probably was ahead of its time um, in so many ways. But it really started so many different kind of design ideas uh, in the game, uh, in, in the game hobby in general, this idea of the action point allowance. I think this was, as far as I know, now I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but... <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's the glorious part about our hobby, that right? Is, we had the uh, the inherent group of fact checkers. That's right, that's right, and that's good. Um, but I, th- yep, to me, I think this is probably the first one that I was aware of in any way, shape, or form is that kind of uh, action point allowance system. And that 
has been used by so many designers and is such an interesting mechanism because it allows you to give players a diverse set of actions and yet for the purposes of either the theme or the purposes of the gameplay itself, you can level them through action point uh, systems. And I I just think it's a brilliant idea and it's one that is extremely useful in game design. And then you couple that with you know, the set collection aspects and uh, the other things that are going on in the game. It's, it's just a, it's a joy to play. So, well, yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier, earlier in the, in the show here about, you know, what, how many firsts, you know, to call was for you. And, 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 and you just mentioned it, you know, the first, you know, action point allowance system game, you know, that you had played and, and, and just to kind of, you know, borrow from some of the things that you said, like, it, it was the first in so many areas. Like it was the first box cover that completely intrigued me, you know, where I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on in this game? <laughs> and then, you know, you crack open the box and there is a, that vacuum insert absolutely has has a, a, a nook and a niche for every little piece and everything fits in there so well. And you you look at that player aid, the first, you know, game that really gave you a a sturdy, you know, player aid where the symbology was perfect. Like I can I can forget the rules. And at this point, as many times as I've played, you know, over the last 17 years of playing it, it's sort of impossible for me to forget the rules. But that player aid, you know, just so clear and showing exactly what's happening and it's doing it with so few symbols you know, just having that, you know, be there. And then the first game where I really felt the the theme shine through, where it was really like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, Settlers of Catan, don't get me wrong, great game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're not really feeling the theme No, there. not really. It's no. kind of arbitrary where to call, you're like, oh, this is an adventure. I'm exploring the Mayan jungle. And that's what what you're doing. And, and of course, you know, I, I would think there's a, a vast majority of the geek community that, that loves, you know, Indiana Jones, you know, any, any kind of, you know, temple treasure game. And, and this definitely, you know, has that. So it just was the first of, of so many things. Yeah. You know, these are all the things, Patrick, that I think make this game uh, just very unique and a kind of one of those landmark games, like one of those games like El Grande, like Settlers of Catan, that mm-hmm. really just was a a moment in kind of board gaming hobby history, you know, and, and this is definitely one of them. And then, you know, you had mentioned earlier in the show the games that came after, like uh, uh, Mexica or, or Mexica or, um, you know, Java. Java. I mean, these, these are wonderful, wonderful games in their own right um, that all kind of took this Tikal sort of uh, system and sort of tweaked it and, and did something different with it and looked at it from another angle, like the canal building in, in uh, Mexica and all that kind of uh, fun stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- this is a game that truly has stood the test of time. And, and I, I thank you for asking about doing a show about it because it's one that really deserved it. So... Before we yeah. wrap this up, um, are there any other things that we haven't really had a chance to talk about that you wanted to sort of highlight about this game? Yeah, and then I apologize for the the hodgepodge nature of this because I'm so long winded about. Oh things, no, but, no, no, no! You know there there are a couple more things that are really important, you know, for people to know about to call because I'm I'm going to be guessing that the majority of people that are listening to this probably haven't played it. 
and really should seek it out and and play it. It'd be interesting to see someone that hasn't, you know, with the litany of offerings that that we have in the industry right now to see how this holds up because I feel that it holds up quite well. Um, so I really really enjoy the the auction version of the game. So people that are experienced, you know. Um, have a bit more control. And this really adds in a, a unique mechanic of you set, you know, basically an income for every player. You put everybody's marker on 20 victory points mm-hmm. and then you flip over however many tiles, you know, or, or the people are playing. And then that removes some of the complained about randomness of I didn't, I got a blank tile. I'm drawing bad tiles every round, which leads me into what I feel the game does really well is the staggering of the tiles through that letter system, knowing, you know, that the A's are, are certain things and the B's are certain things and the C's are certain things all the way up to G is that you're able, the, the flow of the game is controlled while still not being the same every time with that auction version, you're able to flip over three tiles in a three player game and like, yep, that's what I want. And then bid accordingly with, with your points. And so it, it becomes a very interesting way to play it you know, once, once you know the game and really the, the other thing that I really want to touch on to let people know is that to call has a beautiful tactile nature. It has a very good visual, you know, and vertical building of these temples. Now it, it is, you know, a uh, chipboard and it can be a bit fiddly that, that eight, nine and 10 tile mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. super duper small, yes, they are. you know, but they're cool. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're really, really yes, neat. Yeah. And it's really neat to see the board come up. And and I've taken, you know, bird's eye shots. You see the temples. You see all the pieces on there that represent the workers. And it is literally, in my opinion, a work of art when your board is completely done. And it's going to be different, you know, every every single time. You know, they just – I look at this game and I just – the only thing I have to complain about, and it is so minor – is that the box size was a monopoly size yeah, box a weird size and box, that, yeah. it makes you contend for it on your shelf. But if there was ever a game that you had to make a special place for to call is it. And I just have zero other complaints about the game. It is such an amazing game ahead of its time, a first in so many areas and absolutely elegant in its design and its gameplay and its level of interaction that if you haven't played it, I want to shame you a little bit, people, and go out there and, and, and play to call. And maybe it's not for you. I definitely it's high on my nostalgia meter. I will definitely concede and and acquiesce to that. But I feel that it, that is very justified and that if you remove the nostalgia factor from it, it is still an amazing game that that you owe it to yourself to play it at least once. Amen, Brother Nickel. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get down off that. That's pulpit. all I'm going to say is is amen. No, I, I say that because I, I agree with you. I, I don't I think you have been a fantastic ambassador for the game um, in, in explaining uh, from both a fan standpoint, but also from uh, the standpoint of someone who's familiar with game design, uh, development, publishing. Uh, all of these things kind of fit together, and they all sort of came together beautifully in a, in a game like Tikal. And I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. that makes it noteworthy, and it's one of the things that I'm I'm always happy to talk about on the show because it it really fits best the the mission statement of the show, which is taking a, a look at some of these older games and finding out why they hold up. Why you know is this game among the 
gosh, I'm going to guess 5,000 minimum other games that were released between 1999 and now. At least 5,000, okay? probably 50,000. All right, so fine, 50,000. Okay, so (laughs) why is this one deserving of this reprint that's coming that you're talking about? You know, there's a reason for it, and and I don't know that it's... because it was really ahead of its time, and I'll be interested to see kind of... I hope that it's not too late because, yeah, I mean, how many how many games get this chance? Like the, the time between reprint is, you know, we're talking, we're talking 17, you know, 18 years and how many, how many, you know, and this is, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but how many, you know, guests have you had on the episode that have been playing a game for 17 years and it still, still holds up. Like it's absolutely in my, my top five. It, It will never be, be gone in my collection and and we just won't talk about to call two which is totally not related at all oh okay all right because i Ugh, ah, you no. don't like it huh <laughs> it's not it's it's literally they took the name and tried to to make a game you know that that would come after and be a sequel and it has nothing nothing in in relation and in my opinion it was Oh, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Um, what abomination? I didn't say that. Um, no, I, I bought it at last year's Gen Con. It was it was on sale at a booth for ten bucks, and I was like, all right, I'm going to take a yeah. flyer on it for ten dollars. Uh, um, and I started reading the rule book, and I was like, everything we just talked about about what T Call does well with its rules. T Call Two. I was like, what? Who? Where? Nope. Who? What's this about yep. a river? Why am I in a boat? What is this? And and I'm like reading through it and I kind of got a little confused and I, I haven't yet played it yet. Um, it has nothing to do with the first game. And if anybody has played that and not played to call as a result, uh, that that is terrible because the games couldn't be more different. They really, really couldn't. The only thing they share is the name and the rough theme. That right, is it. Right. The, the idea to call two is, is kind of like you're exploring a temple rather than. Uh, going through the jungle and finding all of these different temples. Yeah, and it's and not Kramer. It's not Kessling. Yeah, it's, no, it's... no. And so I, I think that's an excellent point. So I'm glad that we kind of brought it up, to be honest with you, um, because yeah. if, if it has discouraged people from going back and playing Tikal, then, yeah, that would that'd be a shame because uh, Tikal is, is definitely a game that deserves to be played and is one that doesn't really have much relation that I can see. I haven't really gotten through a play of T-Call 2 yet uh, because, like I said, it was a little bizarre looking to me. But, uh, you know, you seem to have confirmed that, that they're not really related at all. So I think that is important no. for people to know because if people are going to judge it based on T-Call 2, then they might take a pass on it, and they really shouldn't. So, no. well, you know, Patrick, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time out of your schedule and your moving and, and all of the stuff and upheaval <laughs> that's going on for you. Uh, at this particular moment, to sit down on a Sunday afternoon, uh, on, Mar- on uh, February 28th there, uh, right before our, our leap day. I think we get 29th tomorrow, right? Yeah, we get a it's bonus a day leap tomorrow. Year. That's right. That would be fantastic. You get a bonus day. Um, and so, I have some friends that were married on that day, so technically they only have to celebrate their anniversary every four years. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or, you know, people who were born on that day, you know, they're like six, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm on these. Why are you drinking old, that yeah. beer? You're not the boss of me. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I want to thank you for uh, reaching out and taking the time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure having you, Patrick. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and, and check out to call people. It really is. It really is a great game. And it's and thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be able to to come on and, and talk about a game that I geek out over, 
you know, very much so, and it, because it just is, it just is so amazing. So I hope everybody gets a gets a chance to play it. And and if this, you know, brings a couple more people into the game, then then my job here is done because it really is deserving uh, of your time. Well, thank you very much, Patrick, and uh, thanks to everybody out there for uh, going along on this journey with Patrick and I. And uh, remember, if you want to try and find him, uh, you can go to Twitter, which I believe you said was uh, um, at Crash underscore Games. Yeah. Um, And of course, you know where to find us here at the Longview Podcast. So for Patrick and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night. 